Welcome to the Loveland Libcast, the official podcast of the Loveland Public Library. Joining me today for our very first Loveland Libcast live at lunch. Very excited to have Leah Johnson joining us for the podcast, for this live podcast. Leah Johnson is the author of Finding Fantastic Joy, How Building a Self-Advocacy Campaign Led Me Out of Darkness, and is also a former elected official in Loveland. Leah, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I appreciate it. It's wonderful to finally do this. We've been talking about you being on the podcast for a while, and we're going to be discussing your book, as I mentioned at the top. For starters, and for listeners who are not familiar with your book, could you go ahead and give them a synopsis of it? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I never, I was actually, we were talking about this before. I, uh, I never really saw myself as an author. <laughs> it wasn't something I aspired to do. It wasn't a life goal by any means, but it seemed after 2019, I had undergone some pretty big life changes, acknowledged some challenges I had in life that I probably needed to address. And after I went all th- through all that and was reflecting, I realized I had a story to share and it felt important enough to share the story because while my story is not unique, there are elements that I feel that many people can relate to and I felt that sharing it was important. So I set out on a quest to write a book, which was, like I said, an, an adventure and a journey I had no intention of ever really pursuing. But the more I... I guess the deeper I got into it, the more I realized what a healing journey it was, how powerful it is to share our stories and encourage other people to share their stories. So the book is that. It's my story. (laughs) It's my story of trauma. It's my story of addiction. It's my story of overcoming that and strength and really figuring out how to live a life that wasn't rooted in this deep, dark sadness, but rather a place of of joy and contentment. For a long time, I would say I called it an addiction to success. I had this desire to be the most successful ever. It didn't matter what I did. I mean, at some point, I think even being president of the moon wouldn't have been enough. (laughs) And so I just kept pushing. As you mentioned, I was a former elected official actually here in Loveland. You know, while I was the youngest woman ever elected and I kept pushing, I had a baby while I was on city council. I just had to prove that I could break that glass ceiling, that I could be the most successful, and it didn't matter. Really, the expense of my health, both physical and mental, the relationship with my husband or my children, you know, everything suffered. Even, you know, my my dad and my sister, those those relationships suffered because at no there was nothing more important to me than the next success. And I just kept pushing and pushing and I basically pushed myself over the edge. And I found myself, you know, finding secondary addictions like alcohol. I found myself not only in suicidal ideation, but actively seeking out (laughs) how to commit suicide. And I really realized something needed to change. And so I did. (laughs) 
<laughs> and here we are. And it's great. And everything's great. <laughs> yeah. I, of course, read your book and it, something that resonated with me and, and that I really appreciate was how open and, and vulnerable you are about your experiences. And what was the process like writing and publishing a book for you? And what made you decide to share your story and your experiences specifically in this format of a book? Yeah, so like I said, after 2019, when I, so in, in 2019, I decided not to run for re-election and also sought help for the secondary addictions, although I'm still fairly certain that the city council one was the true addiction, because <laughs> that's the thing I had the hardest time giving up. <laughs> I could never have a drink again in life and be fine. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, when I, I went through that process and acknowledged I needed help and acknowledged I needed to change things, I, again, realized I had a story. And I went through, you know, I sought out a former, actually, teacher of mine who is amazing. And she was my eighth grade English teacher. And I, I said, I want to write a book. Will you help me? She's like, I've never helped anybody write a book. I'm like, that's okay. We'll be great. Let's do this. And uh, that's pretty much how it started. So she helped me create my first draft, which took me about nine months. It was it, 50,000 words I wrote in nine months. My dad said it was divine intervention that the book was written because, <laughs> thanks dad. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it just, the story poured out of me. Then after I had my first draft, I got connected with this boutique publisher in Boulder who helped me really polish it and get to a place where it it was something that I could put out into the world. And, you know, the truth is I'm incredibly proud of it. And that's it. Doing it is what. There's no, like, end goal with it. It was just the act of doing it. And I know I have a nine-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son. But at the time it was published, my daughter was eight. And when I got my first copy from Amazon in the mail, the very first printed copy, and I handed it to her and she kind of, brushed her hand over the top, the front of it, and turned it over the back, and she goes, wow, mom, your picture's on the back. That's really cool. What it made me realize is, like, my whole journey of writing it and thinking, who cares about, who will care about my story? Why does my story matter? It matters to her. And so, at the end of the day, if I can help other people in the world, that's great. But someday, you know, there's parts of it I'm not ready to share with her yet. But when she is old enough, you know, that story will be her there for her to know and connect with me. I've been thinking about that a lot recently because my mom's, the anniversary of my mom's passing is actually in a couple weeks and it'll be 10 years. And, um, you know, I've really moved past a lot with my mother. I've forgiven her. I, I certainly feel a great deal of love and admiration for her now that I didn't feel even four years ago. But one of the things I struggle with the most is how little I do know about her. I don't know her story. She didn't share much of her story with me. And so I don't know, you know, the things that made her the person that she was. And I know at some point she was just doing the best she could because that's all we do, we can do. But my hunger to know who she was as a human is is stronger than it's ever been. And, you know, not the permanency of death means that I won't ever have those answers. And so, you know, the book to me really is then a gift to my kids. But it's also a symbol of 
stopping the cycles, stopping the addiction cycles, stopping the trauma cycles, stopping that, that ancestral pain that comes from generation to generation and it keeps going unless someone says enough. And so to me, it's a symbol of that, like enough is enough. We don't have to live in those cycles anymore. So that is something very unique that I hadn't really considered is that it does become this story that your children, your daughter can experience, you know, when she's older and, and know about you and know what you were thinking and it becomes this snapshot and this story. Uh, and that's, that's really powerful. And then of course other people can read it as well and get that experience, but, but not having that familial aspect to it. Kind of rooting this into one of the themes of the book, how did the idea of framing your own self-advocacy like a political campaign come about, and has that evolved since the inception of that kind of concept? Yeah, well, you know, they say write what you know. <laughs> so what I've known my whole entire career is campaign politics. But it seemed like it had been such a toxic thing for me, really because it was an outlet for me for that drive for success, that how could I take it and flip it on its head to become something positive? Because it is, you know, community engagement and our systems and democracy are things that I believe in with all my heart and have worked my whole career for. So leaving it in this toxic space seemed, it didn't seem like that's, I, I didn't want it to be left there. And so how could I take those themes and take those ideas that I had been using and implementing for 20 years in my career to help myself and help others realize that when we advocate for ourselves first, we actually become ad better advocates for our communities and our families and our neighborhoods. And so, so I did. And you know, there are elements to a campaign, you know, research being one that you always do opposition research and research on the candidate and that sort of stuff. And so when I looked at that, I'm like, what's, what's the research element? I need to deeply understand you know, what my trauma is, why I react the way I do. And so, you know, when I, when I systematically went through and looked at deeply, you know, what is it, you know, the, the trauma with my mom and, and the, the constant need to prove that I could achieve and all of that with her and then um, the sexual assault when I was in college, like there was some real trauma. And I think acknowledging that and then understanding how to work through it was an important part of it. Then from that, you know, um, campaigns are built on messages. And we all, I mean, I used to say, nobody could run a better campaign against me than I could in my head. Like, I ran the best negative campaign. <laughs> it was good. Um, <laughs> I had to rewire that message. And I had to re, I, I had to take it back because I was, no matter what I did, I was not a failure. <laughs> Even though I told myself that a million times a day. You know, I, I, was not, I was not all the negative things that I was telling myself in my head. And so I really started to rework that message. And when negative thoughts come up or shame, oh, shame is such a powerful emotion that we don't acknowledge. And, Man, when you feel that shame 
and it comes over you and you start, you know, doubting yourself and thinking you're, you're a horrible person and I can't believe I would do that and who would love me and who would like me and da 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 da. I mean, that's, that's all shame. And so I think the more I recognized that those negative thoughts were not me, they were not who I was, and I reworked that message, it really allowed me that the opportunity to shift everything, <laughs> to, to not internalize these things and to truly understand that those, those negative thoughts were you know, trauma and the trauma cycle that was telling me I wasn't enough and they weren't, they weren't right. And so when you start to take back the message, it was, it was pretty amazing. And then from there, it was, uh, you know, priorities. And that was really what 2019 was all about for me is realizing what mattered most. And it was my children. I mean, my kids, again, are the, are the most important thing. And, and my husband and, and our little family unit and the time we have together is everything to me. And I, you know, these days I make every decision through the lens of them first and everything else second. And it is amazing how life just works out when you, <laughs> people think you can't do it, but I am a testament to the fact that you can. And uh, then from there, it was taking that idea of filling your bank. So every, in campaign politics, you need money. But what really fills you up? What, what makes you whole? And for me, it was travel and spirituality and a combination of the both. And so I took those elements and I started making those the next priority in my life. So my family then that travel, what really fills me up. And then everything else came after that. And it's amazing the abundance that happens in your life when you operate from a space of gratitude and true loving priorities. And because it truly does, it falls into place after that. And then, you know, knowing, so in campaign politics, you need advocates and allies, know your people. And, you know, after 10 plus years of living in a pretty dark place, I had, you know, damaged some relationships and certainly with my dad and my sister and some of those spaces. So spent time repairing that, but also making new allies and empowering new friends. And, you know, again, the, the priority things, know who your people are and put them first. So... And then taking control of it all, right? Being the campaign manager of your own life. Everyone says all the time, like, oh, I can't do that because of this. I couldn't ever travel because I don't have the time. I couldn't travel because I can't, you know, financially make it work. I would push back on all of that. Like, it's all, life is all about priorities. You, if you don't show up for this, you're showing up for this. If you don't show up for a work meeting because you're showing up for your kids, at the end of the day, you're doing to your core what matters most. And ultimately, I feel the universe rewards true authentic priorities and advocating for yourself first. So. You had mentioned this when you were, we were talking about that, framing it as a political campaign and, and negative thoughts, things like that. And this passage in particular stood out to me. And now that I have an opportunity to ask the author a bit more, <laughs> I'm going to take advantage of that. And so you discuss this idea of when negative thoughts creep into your head, that you sit with those ideas, wrap them with love and grace and let them go. Could you talk a bit about where that technique came from and how that process works for you? So I don't know where it came from because... <laughs> 
I mean, like life, it's just a hodgepodge of things you pick up here and you pick up there. But it's, a, it's something I use almost daily <laughs> because it's amazing even as an exercise for over four years now of acknowledging ne negative thoughts and shame and all of the things they still come daily. <laughs> I still feel inadequate and embarrassed or any of the emotions that we feel. But I think what I've been able to do now is acknowledge that those are emotions that I'm feeling because of these experiences I had in life before. And when I can take those and give myself compassion, I think so frequently judgment is such a, a quick emotion we all seem to go to in, in our society and, oh, they did that or they did this and, you know, and we judge people for that and then we judge ourselves too. But I think if we can give ourselves compassion, it's almost easier to give others compassion too. And so I really have, as those emotions come, I acknowledge them and I let myself feel them. I mean, that's part of coping with trauma, right? You don't ever let yourself actually feel the emotion. And so it just becomes the cycle because you're not ever actually dealing with the emotion. So instead of trying to cope with it, actually deal with it and acknowledge it and give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling and then let it go. <laughs> and it, you know, it's not perfect and I still, still experience all of these things, like I said, daily, but at least it's not festering inside of me like it did for over a decade, creating, you know, the most unhealthy addiction cycles and trauma cycles that both physically and mentally wear on us as humans. And you had also spoken about priorities and specifically traveling. Could you talk more about how your traveling informs your spiritual journey and vice versa? And what do you hope other people can take from your experiences in this regard? I started going on spiritual journeys to Mexico 10 years ago, actually. I would actually say it was like the Pandora's box that was opened when I did that 10 years ago. And I think when you start to connect with something bigger than yourself, it allows a space of growth that you don't get otherwise. And, you know, for a long time, I would have considered myself atheist or not religious at all. And now I would consider myself deeply spiritual. But I think that's another part of our journeys is we need to give ourselves permission to grow and change. And we don't give ourselves that often. <laughs> and that's just who we are. We're humans. We grow, we learn, new information comes, we change. And, and that's okay. You know, when I first started going on these spiritual journeys, I knew nothing of myself. I had no connection to, <laughs> to basically anything. At that time, that was, like I said, 10 years ago, my mom was quickly declining and I was seeking something greater. And so I found it in this idea of this generational healing and connecting to, to ancestors that allowed me to heal not only myself, but past generations and future generations. And I found that every, as I travel and explore and see the world, you realize how, how big the world is. And it doesn't make me feel insignificant. It makes me feel more significant in a way that like each of us matter to the people you're with at that time. And that's why I think traveling with my little family unit of four is so powerful. We went on a trip to Thailand for over a month or about a month earlier this year. 
And we spent just time, the four of us, in a totally new culture, in a totally new space. And, you know, <laughs> we were, I think of it as like, we're just small dots in this sea of different space and different culture. And yet at the same time, we're absorbing every ounce of it and growing both spiritually and as humans. And it's just, it was an amazing experience. And I think that's what travel really does. It allows you to connect on a emotional and spiritual and cultural level with others that sometimes you don't get when you just stay in the same space all the time. And I mean, for me, that's that deep connection allows with like this idea that we are all truly connected and that we can grow together if we just take the time to learn about each other and spend time in spaces that maybe aren't necessarily always comfortable. And this, this also came up in the book when you talk about traveling. So this is a bit of a pop quiz for you. <laughs> but you mentioned that you always have four trips in your head planned. <laughs> so what four trips do you have planned in your head right now? Well, they're actually on spreadsheets, so it's like official. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have the test answers yeah. ready to go. <laughs> like they, it, it's evolved to not just in my head, but full spreadsheets. <laughs> well, I figure, you know, that's how you manifest. Like this idea of manifesting things is not like you just like think it in my mind and then it just happens. Like you have to intentionally manifest. Like what do you want? And you know, putting it out there, creating it. So, you know, I plan the trips in the spreadsheets and then in, in, in the budget. <laughs> and for a year, we we look at where we're going and it plans in the budget and then we get, go to the next one. And so as it stands right now, well, so I'm planning my trip to Mexico and I was going to say this in the last answer, but so one of the unique things that has come out of this book is the opportunity to share Teotihuacan and the amazing people I've met there on women's spiritual journeys that I'm now leading. I have one in July, so that's actually truly my next trip. Um, and then I think there's going to be some subsequent ones after that because I have a lot of interest in people who would love you know, access to this. And it's a true gift. It's amazing, honestly, to be able to share one of the most significant things that shifted me in a way that allowed me to grow and heal very quickly with other women. And so, so yeah, so that's one trip. Then we're going to Boston in the fall. I went to Boston University. So I get to go show my children where I went to school. So that'll be fun. And then Iceland and Puerto Rico are the 2024. And then, you know, there might be a few more spreadsheets that have already been made. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's an awesome variety of weather and locations and <laughs> well, all of those are uh, yeah, all of those are factors in how we like as a family. And it used to be, you know, I kind of threw it out there to my husband. He's like, "Sure, that's great. I'll just go along wherever we go." But as the kids get older, it really becomes a you know collective decision making. And so we actually had a family meeting a couple, maybe a month ago, talking about, okay, where do we, what countries do you wanna see? What things do you wanna see? What kinds of things do you wanna see? Because again, it's important. I mean, part of it is the experience of us growing together. And I think another thing about traveling as a family is traveling internationally, there's just some elements of it that are hard. <laughs> Like when you don't speak the language or you don't, and especially with children. But I feel like 
what it does is when we can do those kind of hard things together, when we can hike, you know, 14 miles in the Andes together, or we can hike jungle trails in Costa Rica together, or just, you know, navigate big cities and foreign countries together. When we come back and have to do all of life and things get hard, it makes it easier to do it together. And so it's in some ways a exercise for how we as a family become a team to navigate life together and not necessarily, you know, hard things are going to happen. We have to deal with challenges, but we can do it together. So I think that's one of the really amazing things about traveling with young kids and the experiences, how we then implement those experiences back in our everyday lives. You touched on this a little bit and we're talking about traveling and, and family right now. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about priorities, like traveling, like family. And those were very important themes in your book about aligning yourself with your priorities. So can you speak a little bit more to how establishing priorities and living them has helped to reshape your life? Yeah, I mean, it's been everything. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> I think about it recently, I was given a choice. There was a field trip for my daughter and a, a meeting that I was supposed to attend given a role and, you know, all of these sorts of things. And I made the decision to go on the field trip. And, you know, there were some people who kind of frowned upon that decision. Um, but what that field trip did is my daughter was, you know, struggling like many kids do just socially learning, growing and, um, it gave me an opportunity to really watch her and her classmates interact and understand better so I could be a better parent and, and navigate that, help navigate that with her. It's one of those things where, you know, there's pressure to constantly choose what we think we're supposed to do versus what in our hearts we know we, we, where we want to be and what matters. And choosing the where you want to be in your heart and what matters I mean, ultimately, in my experience, pays off in the long run in spaces of how you grow as a human and the things that come back to you. This idea of constantly doing what we think we're supposed to do versus doing what you authentically in your core know what you want and should be doing. And it's hard. I mean, our society says, if you do this, work in this, and money is this, and you know, you have to do this. And I, I've pushed back on that a little bit. And I've said, no, like my kids will come first always and everything else then. And, you know, sometimes I think that makes people uncomfortable, which because it's not necessarily how we've always approached things, but I think, and especially as a woman and a young woman in politics and in a professional space, we have to demand that because the systems are created not to support women who want to be great mothers and also serve their communities. And the only way I can do what I want to do and make the difference in my community is if I put my kids first, because that's the priority that matters, and then everything else. And again, that's, that's not how society has always told us to do it. But, you know, sometimes I bring my kids to meetings and it's hard, but that's what I have to do. And, you know, 
at the end of the day, I'm going to always put them first, but then I'm also going to try and integrate them into the world that I live in so I can continue to make a difference in my community. And is it uncomfortable sometimes? <laughs> and is it hard? Yes. But I mean, the structures we have are set out in a way that quite frankly, were created in a different, a different time. And if we want to truly integrate women into where we are today, we have to create different structures. And that only happens by pushing the boundaries of the structures that exist. So we talked about this when we weren't recording the podcast, <laughs> but people who know you and have read your book, they often ask you, how is it that you're able to travel so much? And it's very organized, obviously. <laughs> spreadsheets. <laughs> Lots of spreadsheets. <laughs> How else do you respond to them or guidance you might share with them? Well, I mean, again, it's like it's financial priorities. It's time priorities. It's all of the above, right? Like everything is about trade-offs in life. And when I talk about spending time with my kids versus spending time other places, and that's the same with travel. I mean, we put it on our calendar. We put it in our budget. And it means that sometimes maybe we don't get to do as many things here locally or, you know, but I think anything you want to do in life <laughs> is, is something that if you put the intention and truly start to manifest it in a way, you know, that you're putting it out there and making things happen towards that goal, you can make things happen. And so I do think it's about choices and, you know, in exchange, do you get that thing on Amazon right away or do you put that money away and save it for a trip? <laughs> you know, like these are, do you get the extra snack at the movie or do you put that money away for, like, I mean, these are all little trade-offs that we can make that our family thinks very intentionally about because it's the priorities we've set out for ourselves collectively, right? So, so I think... It's about what what you truly want and then going after that and making it happen. I really like, from my perspective, this very grounded definition of manifesting something. Manifesting doesn't mean hoping and wishing and concentrating, although that's an element of it, but it also is this work of making it happen. I think it comes down to also like a, a philosophy of abundance and believing you know, having the gratitude and believing in, in abundance versus like the scarcity. I think so oftentimes we as a society get in this very, we don't have enough, we don't have enough, we don't have enough space. And I really try to look at, well, what do I have? I mean, <laughs> and I have a lot and I have so much to be grateful for and I'm well aware of that. But I, I think even with my kids, it's so easy to get in this space of, you know, <laughs> kids argue over you know like popsicles well he got a popsicle and I didn't and then you're like yeah but you know you got half of a popsicle I mean it's just like it's this idea of how do we operate in gratitude for what we have and there's a great book out there called it's not your money and it's one of my favorites by Tosha Silver and she talks about this concept of abundance and versus scarcity and it's just so powerful because I think also a key to my success is being so overly grateful at this point in my life. Like I am successful because I believe I'm successful because I'm just grateful for where I'm at right this moment. And I, 
I think that, you know, while AA has never been my thing, I, again, I think I needed a Chivaholics Anonymous. <laughs> What's really my problem? But, you know, there's a, a phrase in that that you're like gratefully sober, like just, and it's true. Like when you go to a place in life where it is so dark and you have literally seen your worst and you have been that close to death, I mean, light is amazing. And so I think operating with every day with that gratitude creates an abundance that honestly, you know, in 2020, you know, camping was like just being together and being outside and being anywhere. It wasn't necessarily getting on a plane and going halfway around the world, right? It's, it's about the abundance that you have around you and being grateful for what you have. You had mentioned it's not your money, which is a wonderful segue because we always like to ask our guests on the Loveland Libcast for any other book recommendations <laughs> they have. Is there anything else that you think our listeners might want to check out or something you've enjoyed lately or something you always go back to? Well, I mean, the go-tos I read regularly are The Four Agreements and then The Alchemist. I love those two. The Four Agreements, funny story about that. I was actually um, sitting on a porch of a house just over here about 10 years ago when I was super lost and <laughs> I needed something. And a friend of mine recommended that book and said, you should go to Mexico too. And three weeks later, I was on a plane to Mexico because <laughs> I'm always up for the adventure to <laughs> find, find, something in, find something in life. And I still am. But I mean, The Four Agreements was one of those books that truly shifted and changed my life forever. And so it's um, a powerful one. And then another one I'm, I have to be honest, reading isn't something I, <laughs> I listen to a ton of books, but as a mom and all this stuff, it's I'm listening to The Way of Integrity right now. Very good one about how to connect with your authentic self and who you are. And she talks about it as a way of integrity, but you know, getting in line with your integrity. And I think that's the same thing, but what it, I mean, what all of those come down to is connecting with something greater and also connecting with that within yourself. And, you know, this entire journey has truly been about that for me, I think at this point. And, you know, the deep authenticity that I operate with is, it's just kind of one of those things. You, you get what you get. <laughs> so yeah, I think those are some of the recommendations. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And just for the record, we here at the Loveland Libcast, we count listening to audiobooks as reading. So. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, there's often that kind of like, I'm not a reader, but I listen, listen to books. Right. It's like, we count it. That's, <laughs> you're enjoying that book. So. <laughs> It's just time, right? Priorities. That's and exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Leah, thank you so much for joining the Loveland Libcast and for doing a Loveland Libcast live at lunch. Yeah. Really appreciate it. And again, your book is Finding Fantastic Joy, How Building a Self-Advocacy Campaign Led Me Out of Darkness. Thank you again for being on the Loveland Libcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I uh, Loveland is a, a special community. Uh, to me and I'm always happy to be a part of anything here so all right and thank you all at home for listening to another episode of the Loveland Libcast and we will talk to you later bye
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Loveland Libcast. If you'd like to contact us about the podcast, please reach out to Daniel at daniel.tate at cityofloveland.org. That's D-A-N-I-E-L dot T-A-T-E at cityofloveland.org. See you next time.